Well, Good Friday and Easter are, believe it or not, right around the corner, only six weeks away. And that means that this season is the Lenten season, a time of prayer and fasting in preparation for the holiest days of the year. And as has been our custom uh, for the past couple of years, our preaching is adjusted to reflect that. And this year, we're going to spend four weeks in Psalm 51, right up to Palm Sunday, where we'll switch into the Gospels to consider um, the last week, really, of our Lord's uh, life on earth before he is crucified and ascends, resurrected and ascends to heaven. And so, if you're at all familiar with Psalm 51, you know that it's, uh, as we read, a, uh, a quite a heavy psalm. And it seems that four weeks in that is going to be quite a lot. But the intention behind it is not to rub our noses in our sin, but to bring meaning and depth toward our journey to Easter. And I hope that as we move through it, you'll find our uh, series in this psalm doing that. So anyway, with that side note, let's go ahead and begin. We'll pick up in verse 3 and 4. David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, though these themes, acknowledgement of sin, I know my sin, um, my, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me, and uh, submissions to God's, submission to God's verdict, uh, I, David says that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge, These themes, though they are second chronologically, they are first in priority. David pleads with the Lord, be gracious to me, blot out my iniquities, wash me, cleanse me from my sin, but he does so on the basis of what comes next. For, he says, I know my transgression. In other words, an honest confession of sin must proceed one's plea for the removal of sin. Before we ask the Lord to do His part, before we ask for forgiveness, we must do ours and acknowledge our sin. And again, our part as the offending party is to acknowledge that sin. David says, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. His disobedience, that is to say, was not concealed or suppressed or put away out of sight, but openly admitted before the Lord. And if you're all familiar with David's story, you'll know that it was not always this way. For quite some time, the biblical narrative tells us the king refused to acknowledge his sin. Nine months at the very least, he raped Bathsheba, he murdered her husband Uriah, and yet carried on as normal. He never faced his sin, and he went on refusing to face it. And it seems by all accounts that he would have never faced his sin unless the prophet Nathan had confronted him. And in the prophet's words, David saw himself, and he was humbled to the dust. He admitted, I have sinned against the Lord. But the king's evasion, maneuvering around his sin, is not isolated to him. 
It's common to all human nature. Long before David, our ancestors set the precedence. Confronted by their conscience, afraid to stand before the Lord naked as they truly and really were, Adam and Eve, the scripture tells us, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Such is human nature. When confronted with the truth about ourselves, our first instinct is to cover it over with a lie. And each one has their particular method of doing this, sewing themselves a covering. Afraid to face the truth about themselves, one suppresses their sin by deadening their conscience. Another covers their sin in zealous religious obedience. Another minimizes their sin by maximizing the sin of another. And on and on it goes. These coverings, as we're calling them, and we each know our own, are self-justifying and self-preserving means to protect us from the truth. When God summoned Adam to him, how did he respond? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Adam, not wanting to see himself, And more importantly, not wanting God to see him, covered up his nakedness and hid behind a bush. And as the father, so his children, afraid to acknowledge the truth about ourselves, with all that it entails, we seek a covering. The truth is simply too much to bear, therefore we construct a lie to insulate ourselves from its light. And the truth is, If that lie is never uh, confronted, the lie that one shelters themselves in will become their prison. One will begin to believe the lie that they tell about themselves, that their covering, their fig leaves, do indeed cover and conceal their nakedness. The Pharisee who thanked God that he was not like other people, swindlers and the unjust and adulterers, had become like this. He had come to trust in his own lie. And when this smug self-assurance sets in, repentance is very far away. So thoroughly cocooned in the lie, the truth cannot penetrate our hearts. And if by some chance it does, it's immediately expelled lest it expose our nakedness. And in reality... These coverings that we make for ourselves cover nothing. Though they provide us with the occasional comfort, hiding ourselves from the truth about ourselves, God sees right through them. He knows who we are. Theologian John Webster writes, He is, very simply, the one who sees and declares the truth. And seeing and declaring the truth cuts through all human illusions, all human evasions. There is no argument here, no gainsaying, no qualifications or excusing. God simply says, I know. And what use is it then to cloak ourselves in coverings when all things are open and laid bare 
to the eyes of, of him with whom we have to do. In the 32nd Psalm, King David says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For a day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. In other words, the king's coverings, his methods of self-justification and self-preservation failed him. The Lord's penetrating gaze corroded through David's defenses and began to eat away at his heart. My vitality, he says, was drained away. In Hebrew's vitality is in Hebrew rather, vitality is literally translated juices. The freshness and the sweetness of David's life had been burned away, knowing that God saw through his lies. And so the point is this God's piercing knowledge about who we are leads us to acknowledge the truth about who we are. He knows, and therefore we can know. Again, theologian John Webster says, It is part of the perversity of our sinful nature that we operate with the crazy idea that God doesn't see what we're doing. We think we're safe, that God doesn't know, that God doesn't see, that we can live our lives hidden away, invisible to God, and immune from judgment. This is indeed a kind of madness, yet very deep within the heart, the human heart, is a sense of invulnerability. The Pharisee who trusted in himself is the embodiment of these words. Yet, we must be like the tax collector that he scorned. The tax collector, our Lord says, was was unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. One must put aside their illusions and evasions, stop their arguments and excuses, and frankly admit their nakedness. I see who I am. I know who I am, a sinner. And this, being truthful with oneself, about oneself, constitutes the first step toward repentance. Until the truth is embraced, no matter how uncomfortable and bitter, healing is not possible. And now the next step is just as crucial. One must not only acknowledge the truth about themselves to themselves, but they must acknowledge that truth before God. Look at what David says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me acknowledging it to himself, and then he turns to the Lord and says, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. The guilt and shame that festers within us is in relation to the human persons whom we've sinned against, to be sure, but it's deeper than that. Somehow it refers back to God, and we know it. One feels intuitively that the inward stain is in reference to the Creator, that it is with Him whom we have to do. In his commentary on the Psalms, John Calvin articulates exactly this. He says, I conceive his meaning to be that although 
the world should pardon him, he felt that God was the judge with whom he had to do, that that his conscience hailed him to his bar, and that the voice of a man could administer no relief to him, however much he might be disposed to forgive or to excuse or to flatter. His eyes and his whole soul were directed to God regardless of what man might think or say concerning him. And again, this seems to be intuitive to human nature. Aware that our sin is ultimately against God, we hide ourselves from him like Adam, our primordial father. And this is painfully obvious out in the world. But even within the church, it's not uncommon. Burdened by their conscience, oppressed by unrelenting guilt, many brothers and sisters are driven back into darkness. Fear and trembling take hold once again. God is no longer their refuge, but their terror. Someone whom they feel compelled to keep a distance from. Someone whom they feel that something in them is not letting them get very close to him. And so why is it that sin drives us from hiding, or drives us into hiding? Because, as we've said, we intuitively understand that our sin is against the Lord, and that it is with Him whom we have to answer. And so our confession, therefore, must be first and foremost to Him. Against you, you only, I have sinned. The one whom we've sinned against, we must face Notice the particularity of David's word. He does not say, against your law I have sinned, but more accurately, against you I have sinned. There was a certain personal element to sin that cannot be overlooked. And the personal element that we're trying to articulate might be called sinning against God's goodness. Sin is never merely sin against an arbitrary law or some standard that exists out there, but rather it is sin against a friend, against a lover, against the very giver of our lives. And when the prophet confronted the king, he related these words from the Lord, Second Samuel 12, verses 7 through 9, thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who appointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave your masters, gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing this in his sight? Before addressing the king's transgression, the Lord recounts his immense goodness toward David. I anointed you king. I gave you your master's house. I gave you the house of Israel. And if that had been too little, I would have given you many more things. And in spite of all this goodness, the Lord asks, why have you despised the Lord by doing evil in his sight? And that, ultimately is what makes the king's sin and our sin so grievous and and bitter to bear. It's this awful recognition just how bad one has been to the Lord. 
And yet, if repentance is ever to come, this awful truth has to make its impression on our hearts. We have to recognize the truth about our situation. And so the last step into the truth that one must take is to agree with the Lord about their sin. That is, one must recognize the truth about themselves, about their relation to the Lord, and then they must admit that it's all true. Listen to the king's words. Again, uh, Psalm 51, verse 4, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. These words mark the final acceptance of one situation. David here has been completely shorn of all arguments and excuses. He does not pin the reason for his sin on his circumstances or on his temperament or on anything else for that matter in an attempt to justify himself. Rather, David justifies the Lord. I am wrong, he acknowledges. I have done what is evil in your sight and your judgment is true. And so as hard as it is to get to this point, it's absolutely crucial that we do. Because a person who's come to this point, who can say those words, you are blameless when you judge, and you are justified when you speak, a person who can say those words is one who has taken responsibility for their sin. The former guises and facades designed to shelter ourselves from the truth are done away with. Honesty and truth have entered into the soul, and now the Lord's healing work can begin. So we have to go deep into this humility, but when we do, the Lord meets us. Psalm 51 verse 1, it says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Now, coming to the grips with the truth about oneself is enough to destroy us. The truth sometimes is too heavy a load to bear. And we'd be better off, we tell ourselves, by not bearing it at all and just living a lie. And to be honest, that's true to a certain extent. If the Lord were not abundant in loving kindness and great in compassion, then indeed it would be better to live a lie. Because if there were no offer of forgiveness, if there were no hope, before long, the immense weight of sin would drive us into despair and ultimately self-destruction. Lies, at least, make life livable. But notice the king's words. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Deeper than the deepest sin, greater then the greatest iniquity is the Lord's loving kindness. And this, brothers and sisters, is what we must believe. The determining thing is not one's one's sin, but the Lord's mercy. Our sin does not have the final say. Our sin does not put the period at the end of the sentence, but the Lord does. And I recognize that in the midst of sin, this seems like the furthest thing from the truth. Sin seems imminently more present than any notion of the Lord's compassion. 
And yet, the scripture says, where our sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. The great English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones called this the paradox of the penitent. He knows he has sinned against this holy God, and he knows that with this God there is loving kindness. And with God there is a multitude of tender mercies, and he casts himself upon this mercy. It is a very strange and very wonderful thing. The one that we have sinned against is in our last resort our only refuge. It's strange because our appeal to forgiveness is not made to something outside the Lord. That is, the appeal is not made in virtue of some other thing. Be gracious to me, O God, according to my repentance. Or, according to my remorse, blot out my iniquities. Rather than the appeal being made to some third thing, it's made to the Lord alone. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, um, blot out my transgression. It's summed up perfectly in the words of the 41st Psalm. It says, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Again, in other words, a person finds healing and refuge, not apart from the Lord whom they've sinned against, but in the Lord whom they've sinned against. Heal my soul, the psalmist pleads, for I've sinned against you. And so when everything within us seems to be telling us to hide from the Lord, to to run away, it is in fact the Lord who is calling us to himself that he might share his compassion, that he might forgive us. And so it's strange on the one hand, but on the other, it's wonderful. Because the one whom we've sinned against has also promised us his mercy. The Lord is our refuge from sin because His forgiveness is always greater than our offense. The king turns to the Lord. Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Imagine the the unimaginable, what he was dealing with, the weight and the pressure of that shame and guilt. And yet he goes to the Lord. Why? How How could that happen? How could a murderer, how could... Someone who did what he did go to the Lord. Because David knew that at bottom, the Lord's desire to pardon and to excuse and to clear sinners from their sin is far greater than his desire to condemn and execute judgment upon them. Indeed, if he has that desire at all, God's will for mankind, the scripture tells us, is forgiveness and life. Ezekiel 33.11 says, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Ezekiel 18.23, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. And it's, it's, it's this, church, the fundamental goodness of the Lord's nature that is our assurance. He takes no pleasure in a sinner's death and judgment. There isn't the slightest hint that he secretly enjoys it. 
The Lord, rather, is wholly good. Indeed, goodness itself. And as such, he will not turn away a sinner who comes to him. Just the opposite, in fact. As we read this morning, the Lord is good and ready to forgive. And all of this is deeply reminiscent of Jesus' parable about the prodigal son. Before his wayward son can even get the words out, his father falls upon him and welcomes him home. The son had squandered his father's inheritance on prostitutes and loose living, yet the father pays no mind to it. He is simply overjoyed that his son who was lost, and now has been found. And this hope, rather, this assurance, is absolutely necessary if we are ever to repent. Without it, one may come to the knowledge of sin, but they will never be led out of sin. Without the assurance that the Lord forgives sinners, that he justifies the ungodly, we would be left in agonizing uncertainty, unsure that we've ever been cleansed. And so we might put it this way. Repentance does not precede grace, but grace precedes repentance. Charles Spurgeon, in his book, All of Grace, put it this way. He says, Do not regard your repentance as the cause for your remission, but as the companion to it. He says, do not expect to be able to repent until you see the grace of our Lord Jesus and his readiness to blot out your sin. In other words, we do not repent and then hope against hope that somehow the Lord might find it in his heart to be gracious to us. It's just the opposite. The one who repents does so because they've already seen that the Lord is good and ready to forgive. The initiative lies on His side and not ours. His kindness leads us to repentance, rather than our repentance leading Him to kindness. It's not that all our tears and all our remorse about our sin are somehow going to turn God's angry heart toward suddenly compassionate. It's the exact opposite. It's God's compassionate heart that turns our hard hearts and makes them soft. In your struggle, therefore, believe and trust in the Lord's tender mercies. Remember these words. Remember these words of the psalmist. Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14. He says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. In our sin, we must wait for the goodness of the Lord to come to us. It's not an empty hope, mere presumption and wishful thinking, but a promise. And as a promise, we must believe it. The psalmist says, I would have despaired unless I had believed. And indeed, in your struggle with sin, you'll find yourself despairing, feeling there's no way out, feeling that I can't get out of this unless you believe in the Lord's greater goodness. So believe, therefore, that the Lord's tender mercies and His abundant loving kindness are not going to delay much longer. 
Say with Jeremiah, Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So take courage then and bolster your hope by recalling to mind the never-ending, inexhaustible, tender mercies of the Lord. And so allow me to leave you just with one more example from the prophet Micah. This is from his writings, chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. He says, But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Then he says this, Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Here, the prophet confronts his enemies. He does not bow his neck and consent to shame and guilt. Rather, he defies them saying, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Where does the prophet get this confidence? From himself? Though I fall, I will rise on my own account? Not so. It stems from a deep conviction in the Lord's goodness. He says, though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. He says, I've made this mess for myself. I've got myself here, but the Lord is my light. He continues, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Micah expresses here perfectly what I've only been able to gesture at. And, and again, it's, it's that the one whom we've sinned against is simultaneously our advocate. And that is our confidence and hope. Though we sin against him, he still pleads our case. His grace is deeper than our sin. And so in the meantime, because of our sin, yes, we must bear God's anger, but very soon, Micah says, he'll bring us into the light. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. And so as we enter into this season of preparation, these passages teach us how to prepare for Holy Week, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. We wait upon the Lord to accomplish our redemption to usher in his unceasing loving kindness and his compassions that never fail. And indeed he has. Our advocate has come. Jesus Christ has taken up our case. He has argued for us, not against us. He's taken our sins to the cross and he's made an end of them forever. And all glory and all honor and all power be to you, Lord Jesus. 